0: Siddhartha Mukherjee is an oncologist and researcher. He is an assistant professor of medicine at Columbia University and a cancer physician at Columbia University and NYU Presbyterian Hospital. He's a former Rhodes Scholar. He graduated from Stanford, the University of Oxford, where he got a Ph.D. in studying cancer-causing viruses, and he got his medical degree from Harvard Medical School. His laboratory focuses on discovering new cancer drugs. He's published articles and commentary in such journals as Nature, the New England Journal of Medicine, Neuron, and in publications like the New York Times and the New Yorker and the New Republic. He won the Pulitzer Prize for his book on cancer, The Emperor of All Maladies. And his most recent book, which is the topic of our conversation, is The Gene, an Intimate History. And now I give you. Siddhartha Mukherjee. I am here with Siddhartha Mukherjee. Siddhartha, thanks for coming on the podcast. Yeah, my pleasure. Well, listen, you, are, uh, you have a great job, it looks like. You're doing amazing things in the world on at least two fronts. I, I just want to start, before we get into your book, I want to start by getting you to describe what it is you do and how much of your time is spent in each of these two careers. You have, you have a career as a physician and as a writer, both at very high levels. So describe what you're doing. So I'm a physician scientist. Um, and
1: uh, the particular area I work on is, the, the, is uh, in the clinical realm, I work on uh, leukemias. I'm an oncologist. So I treat cancers. Um, I see patients with cancer. My uh, area within cancer is leukemia and lymphoma, basically uh cancers of the of blood cells although i certainly see other cancers as well and treat other cancers as well much of uh, so so that's one aspect of my physician scientist life the other part is i do laboratory research i do basic cancer research our laboratory has a really couple of major fronts we can talk about them but i work on cancer genetics um we've discovered uh, genes that are implicated in cancers particularly blood cancers and we try to use that information about cancers to try to figure out how to treat, uh, make new treatments, and then bring that uh, all of that stuff back to the clinic to sort of make a difference in um, in human lives. Um, so it's um, you know it's been called a, a bench to bench to bedside, but of course it's a, it's a long and complicated route. So that's the world that I live in. I, I have a laboratory um, actually across the street from where I see patients. So. Um, in a, in a rather physical sense, I'm 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 in, in the road in between.
0: So now I I cut you one job short. You have three jobs. You're a physician. You're a scientist, and you are also a writer. So to, and how much of your time is spent writing these books we're about to talk about and your New Yorker pieces?
1: The uh, you know the time is spent. Um uh, it's very uneven. Um, so, you know, my, my primary life, um, is as a physician scientist, but then when the books come, they, you know, the, the birth of a book is like the, uh, the birth of a baby. It, it, the books take over your life for a while.
0: Though sometimes bloodier.
1: <laughs> they take over for, for a while. And then, and, and then they go out into the world and, and eventually they sort of take on a life of their own. Um, one thing that's nice is that, um, for the, for the first book, Emperor of All Maladies, um, I then collaborated with Ken Burns um, and a bunch of other people, um, cancer uh, geneticists and cancer biologists on making a documentary. So I was, that, that book uh, sort of acquired a second life, um, if you will. Um, and that's going to happen with the gene as well. We're gonna, uh, Ken Burns is again going to do a PBS uh, documentary on the gene. So it's, 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 a, it's a somewhat, it's like a sine curve. You, you, it goes up for a while, then it dies down for a bit, then goes up for a while, uh, et cetera. And, um, you know, The New Yorker is not the only outlet um, that I write for. I write for um, um, uh, The New York Times Magazine. Actually, I've written much more for them in the past. Um, And um, also for other places like Vice, uh, where I uh, do also some editorial work. Um, But really, it's all focused on questions. I I write pieces not because I'm on salary at any of these places, but because I am interested by when when a topic interests me, or when, or when the editors want to excerpt things from the book um, is when, when those pieces appear. That either book excerpts chosen by the editors or they are topics that I initiate because I'm interested in them.
0: Right, right. Well, I want to talk about The Gene in particular, your, your more recent book. I, I have some questions about cancer I'd like to ask you at the end. Unfortunately, I have not read Emperor of All Maladies, for which you won the Pulitzer, but I've read The Gene, and, and that's your more recent book, and that gets to some really fundamental science, obviously, but fundamental questions of human existence and public policy and ethics. And this is as rich a topic as anyone can find in the 21st century. And I want us to move through it fairly systematically because I can assume a fairly, or even a very educated audience on this podcast. And in other episodes, I would be happy to use a term like phenotype without bothering to define it. I would just, just assume that people can look it up if they're confused. But in this conversation, I think we should do our best not to leave anyone behind on anything, because the topics are so fundamental and, and important.
1: That would be great. And, and stop me when you think that, you know, when... when the, the whole point of the book is to really minimize jargon. Now, that involves some simplification, yeah. uh, necessarily. So we'll try to, try to cut the right balance, but that, that, that's a tough thing to do because the audience, as you're saying is simultaneously very sophisticated, but some of the issues here are so fundamental that that if we, if we don't if we gloss over them, I suspect we'll lose sight of uh, very important issues
0: yeah and they're just interesting facts that jump out of even the definition of a word that you are quite sure you understand and, and use without any self-consciousness let's start where you, you know, kind of the path you take through the book is it's, it's very much of a A historical tour of our understanding of the basis of life and inheritance so you you trace it from its beginning in really in just philosophical speculation you start with pythagoras and plato and aristotle but then it wasn't until mendel that we arrive at a really a crucial understanding of the the atomic and information theoretic Aspect of inheritance. So, just remind people about the significance of what Mendel did.
1: Well, if, if, if it's okay with you, let's start with a little before Mendel. Uh, let's start with, uh, with people that you mentioned Pythagoras, Aristotle, Plato. The question of human heredity why is it that we look like our parents? Why do we, why we look unlike our parents? is a question that really obsessed people, scientists, thinkers, philosophers for generations and, and, and twinned to that idea. Um, and it's very important to, to, to make it very clear is that even in Plato, even in Aristotle, you have simultaneously the desire to understand heredity and a desire to manipulate human heredity. Um, those things come hand in hand. That's one of the messages of the book, is that no sooner have, you, have we begun to understand the principle of her, or principles of heredity, because of the aspirations that we have as humans to guarantee, it's some ancient desire clearly, but to guarantee the best for our children, The the, the minute heredity does not live in abstraction, even for a minute, it it immediately becomes concrete. It immediately becomes, uh, uh, it jumps to life, literally, um, and and begins to work its way into fundamental questions about who are we? What do we want to transmit? how, How do we aspire to see ourselves? How do we aspire to see our children? Aristotle wrote about this. Plato wrote about this. They didn't understand what heredity was necessarily in current scientific conception, but they had strong ideas about it. And those ideas were powerfully twinned to the notion that they would change human beings if, we could, if they could manipulate it.
0: Mm. Well, then we're going to get to the topic of eugenics, but I think the punchline I take away from what you just said is that eugenics on some level is unavoidable. I mean, we all begin attempting to practice it the moment we start thinking about genes. That, that, that's, the, that, that's exactly the point.
1: The point is that... Um, the aspirations to manipulate genes come directly out of some ancient human desire, which is very related, ultimately, to uh, you know, as I said, wanting the best for yourself and your children. So, so, and, and and we see this pattern recurring over and over again in 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 this book. In fact, it's, it's obviously one of the one of the drivers in this book um, is that is to realize that you know it's not as if in 2017 we've all of a sudden ascended to some kind of higher plane. Where we've been able to somehow divorce the, or, or, or cut um, our understanding of genetics from our desire to manipulate it. And in fact, it, it's only been amplified. We'll come to these topics, but it's important to underscore them right from the beginning. So, on to Mendel. Um, Mendel um, is an important, interesting character um, in this book. Um, the, the, the first version of the book didn't begin with Mendel, but I thought that, uh, and, and I'll, I'll talk to you about how I reorganized some of these uh, issues. But Mendel is, of course, um, the is a very, for me, the the most the most obvious way to begin this story, and that's because um, even though Mendel didn't coin the word gene, he performed experiments uh, that allowed him to get to the concept of the gene. Now, who is Mendel? Mendel was a monk. Um, we know I, I've been to Bruno. I've looked through you know whatever papers there are on Mendel, some of them in translation, some of them I had translated from the original Germans. Mendel was a was a monk. Uh, he uh, lived in what is now the uh, the Czech Republic um, most of his lifetime in a city called Brno, um, which was a, um, a, 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 a city center, a relatively um, active uh, place. Um, the he he was uh, he lived most of his life in a monastery, and attached to that monastery was a garden. Mendel, the monk, um, like many other uh, monks, Parsons, natural, uh, 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 people who um, certainly were, were part of the, of, the, of the clergy, was interested in questions of natural science. He was also a natural scientist, um, and he was an Augustinian. In fact, many Augustinians trained in botany, they trained in biology, they trained in geology, and Mendel was, was, was carried this tradition forward. And the question that Mendel asked was a very simple question, which is: um, if you uh, if you take uh, hereditary traits um, that are that are, that move across generations, what is the pattern of that movement? Um, is it that these traits, once you mix them together, do they blend like a like a wearing blender, um, or is there something about them that is? Or is there something different about them? Now, interestingly, you know the, the the dominant theory in Mendel's time was this wearing blender blender kind of theory. Uh, this idea that, that that, uh, and in fact, it makes makes some intuitive sense. You know, your your height is some kind of average between your mother and your father. Uh, your the shape of your nose or the color of your hair is often some kind of average. So it makes a lot of intuitive sense. But of course, it doesn't make entire intuitive sense because if that was true. You couldn't explain gender. Um, you know, gender is not the average of your uh, of your two parents. Um, every generation produce, somehow seems to retain the information about um, uh, male physiology and he- female physiology, male anatomy and female anatomy, and then seems to be able to regenerate this information. So even the even the most obvious, if you think about it for a second, there was a problem there. You had to explain these two peculiar contradictions. Mendel doesn't write about these contradictions. He went straight into the experiments. Um, and his experiments, Mendel's genius was to boil the experiment down to very simple, a very simple idea, uh, which is, uh, you know, if you take two traits and, and you've bred them to be true in, 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 in an organism, two strains of organisms, what happens when you mix them? What happens in the first generation? What happens in the second generation? And what he found was astonishing. what he found was that uh, if you did this experiment with peas, that you would, uh, that these traits seemed to behave in a very odd manner. They did, first of all, they did not blend. Uh, one trait became dominant over the other. The second thing was that as they moved through the generations, the traits didn't go away. They had the capacity to be retained in some kind of, um, you know, indivisible or you know, we struggle for analogies, atomistic form. It couldn't be split apart. They didn't sort of, as the wearing blender didn't blend them all away. They remained true to their original essence. And then he also found that, that, that they, they acted independently of each other. They were really like, somewhat like particles. Now, there's, been a, there's a lot of debate uh, looking back at Mendel, whether he was solving the problem of heredity in general, whether he was interested in, in plant hybridization, so the smallness of his experiment. I happen to believe, having read Mendel over and over again, that he was very aware that his experiments had something important to say about how organisms create their form and function. So he, of course, didn't use the word gene. Um, he, if you read his papers, uh, and perhaps this is the way to read them in, in, in contemporary times, if you read the papers, you do get the sense of his uh, idea that information is involved. He codes uh, the idea of a gene, he called it a big A, big A and small a, for instance. So I, I don't know how hist- history will will sort of eventually solve solve the question of how much Mendel knew about um, what he had eventually uh, found, but certainly, uh, to to my reading, there's a strong hint that number one, Mendel understood that what he found was very consequential that traits uh, did not move in this wearing blender form, but in fact had a kind of again, uh, we, we struggle with, with, with modern words for this, but it had a kind of uh, atomic quality about them. They were indivisible. They were particulate. Um, and they moved across generations in whole, in wholesome, in, in, a, in a kind of whole form. And, and that, was his, that was the basic, uh, and, and, were, and they followed, and this is an important piece as well, they followed mathematical laws and ratios, um, which would be very tough to capture if you were just sort of blending everything together.
0: Well, there's one way, way to solve that problem. We can clone some of that DNA that was left on those manuscripts and raise the resulting human being in a monastery near a pea garden and then ask him what he's thinking.
1: Well, to me, to me what's interesting about all of this is that, you know, I, I was at a conference recently, and I, 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 uh, one of the things that I tried to do was to remind people of the exact dimensions of that garden. Um, and, of course, it is strikingly small. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's about the size of three rooms. And from those three rooms springs uh, all of this discussion today about gene cloning and ethics and et cetera, et cetera.
0: So. Yeah, it's remarkable. So let's talk a little bit about what we now know that Mendel didn't and uh, essentially the, the, the basics of information flow in biological systems. So you have you know, genes to RNA to amino acids to proteins. Just remind listeners of that sequence a little bit.
1: There are two ways you can think about the information flow. Um, one way is that genes encode instructions. Um, they usually encode instructions by, um, uh, by the, they instruct the formation of RNA. This RNA itself uh, can, can give rise to important uh, functions in cells and bodies. But also this RNA then gets translated into proteins, um, which are strings of amino acids, that uh, can be even further chemically modified, but are fundamentally strings of amino acids. And th- these uh, strings of amino acids ultimately are responsible for much of the form and function that we see in living organisms. So there's, a, they, there's, there's information transfer. You can think about genes as the, uh, the master code of instructions, the RNA as a kind of soft copy, although as I said, it itself has, uh, has important functions. It itself can carry out much of the important functions. And that RNA is translated into proteins, which uh, are responsible for most of, of what we know about um, features and functions of organisms. So the, you know, the, the color of your hair, the color of your eyes, um, the signals that go between cells uh, that instruct cells how to be and what to, what to be. Many of these are either proteins themselves or they are products that are created by proteins.
0: There is both the protein product of genetic transcription, and then there's just the fact that some of these products also regulate the function of genes as well.
1: So that's an important piece. Um, that the regulation of genes is an, is an, is, a, is a crucial uh, piece, and it was um, it was known for a while that that. So the question, of course, is um, you know the cells in your eye and the cells in your the cells in your retina and the cells in your blood. Have essentially, give or take some exceptions, the same uh, uh, genetic information, the same DNA. Uh, how is it that the the cells in your eye are or your retina are very different from the cells in your in your blood? And it turns out that genes are regulated. So it's so it, it, uh, the the analogy that I use is that um, although the uh, the symphonic score, if you were if you uh, were to use that analogy. The musical score is the same in the eye and in the in the in the blood. The uh, eye cell chooses to play out certain parts of, of that score, um, and in doing so, picking out certain bars, picking out certain um, sections. It uh, obviously the output uh, of uh, the genetic output that it has in RNA and proteins is different, and that is partly responsible for the difference between your uh, retina and your um, the cells in your retina and the cells in your cells in your blood.
0: Mm. And there, there's really no clear boundary between species. When we're, when we're talking about genes as information, there's no DNA that is intrinsically human, and there was no first human. Both of those are correct, and they're very, very, they're very important consequences.
1: So the fact that there is no, uh, that the genetic code seems, for the most part, there are few uh, you know, there could be minor quibbles with that sentence, but for the most part, the genetic code is identical between blue whales and bacteria and humans. First of all, that's that is a powerful, powerful um, argument for evolution. Um, we'll, we'll set that aside for a second, uh, but but in fact, that that there is that there is the flow of information has been conserved across organisms across the entire uh, biological world. And and you're right, there is nothing fundamentally human about human DNA. Um, If you were to put, as as, as experiments have shown, you can put a yeast gene into a human cell, and for the most part, the human cell um, will uh, take that yeast gene and make uh, RNA and proteins out of that yeast gene. You can take a viral gene and put it into into a bacterium, and for the most part, the virus will Take that viral gene, make uh, RNA and protein out of that viral gene, and there's nothing intrinsic to one versus the other. Again, there there will be, there are some minor sort of scientific quibbles about about what I just said, but that's for the most part true.
0: And again, as the with respect to species, the boundary between species is blurry in time too. There was no there was no moment where in the primate line if you, you know, had a time machine, you could go back and point to the first human being.
1: They're exactly right. Um, they, you know, it depends on what we mean by, by blurry. In a genetic sense, there's, a, there's continuity. But, but of course, as, as, as you know very well, uh, part of the formation of species is reproductive isolation, so and, and thereby leading to uh, the, the, the formation of species. So so, in a genetic sense uh you're absolutely right there's a, there's there's con- continuity um, but um, that itself you know doesn't make species species formation is i mean I discussed it a little bit it's not the central subject of the book, but species formation is a little bit more complicated than than just genetic continuum
0: yeah so i I want to just touch on this topic of eugenics because you can't avoid it for long, and as you just indicated, this is just part and parcel of Understanding what genes are, or even attempting to understand them, and this this idea that now obviously eugenics is a highly stigmatized word for good reason, given fairly recent human history, and we can talk about that, but just this basic issue of caring about how the next generation turns out as a possible parent I mean if you, if you marry a person because they're smart and beautiful and not too crazy and you think they'll be a good parent and you wouldn't select them as a mate if they weren't these things this seems to amount to a very crude form of eugenics doesn't it well eugenics
1: has a uh, you know kinship and mate selection etc um, are topics of their own i mean the way i like to think about eugenics you're right there's a there's a there's it seems that there's an ancient desire uh, that we have uh, which is ultimately related to the idea of you know, how to best uh, create the best future for our children, that's, a, that's, a, that's, an, that's an ancient um, desire. Eugenics has to do with, uh, there's a, so it's, it's important to distinguish between those um, aspirations uh, which are present in multiple cultures, present in ancient cultures. Eugenics is a kind of deliberation on that idea. It, it brings it to a, a particular kind of self-consciousness. And it is the idea that we can, deliberately prospectively intentionally manipulate human heredity in order to create the the best human humans for the second in the next generation and in doing so improve the human race or species these were victorian words but we have to use them here um in general um so I, the forward march as it were um i mean look the reason we're having this entire conversation i think is that is that we're at a pivotal moment in in history we'll talk i'm sure more about this but as you know, just to give a, give 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 the listeners a kind of advanced flavor, um, three or four months ago, the National Academy of Sciences uh, wrote a document saying that for the first time, it would be permissible under extreme circumstances, under you know conditions where there's a disease that causes extraordinary suffering, to intervene on the human genome in a in a manner that would make that information perpetually permanently heritable in humans. In other words, in sperm and egg forming cells. Right so-called germline, genetic, or genomic modification. Everyone who's listening to this should know or will know that this is a momentous uh, point in history. We are essentially saying that we are a machine that has begun to learn to read and write its own instructions. So therefore, uh, the question arises, you know, when in the past, wh- when have we? what has happened when we've, when we've been tempted to read and write our own instructions? And 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 just to point out, there's a there's a there's an ancient drive in here. Uh, the, you know, the, the writings go back to Plato and Aristotle, but uh, this self consciousness arises particularly um, in the uh, late 18th and uh, 19th and 20th century. So the word eugenics is coined by uh, Francis Galton, a cousin of Darwin's, and uh, Galton imagines that you know if that that he could that he can he and others can manipulate human heredity to produce better human beings and thereby improve the human condition in general, alleviate suffering and improve the human condition in general. And in fact, one of the things that's important about eugenics in this first phase is that um, it is embraced by many Victorian progressives. Um, it is thought to be a progressive idea. It's thought to be an idea which we should be subscribing to because what else? What, what other better way that is there to improve the, uh, improve the human condition than take the you know, take the horns and the reins of of heredity in your own hands. Um, Many, many famous Victorian progressives sign on to this. uh, You can list them in the, they're listed in the book. And then there's a second phase. The second phase is is that eugenics then moves to the United States. So it undergoes a kind of manic adolescence in the United States. This is a time from around 1910s to the 1930s. When it is also the rage in the United States, offices of the eugenics record office is soon set up. Um, and and in, 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 the, in, in England, eugenics meant selective breeding. In America, the twist, uh, twist was placed on it. Eugenics became the possibility of selective sterilization that if you were an imbecile, or a moron, or, or had genetic, uh, or what was perceived to be genetic or hereditary problems—
0: We should remind people that those were technical terms, imbecile, moron, yes, we idiot. Yes, remind
1: people that, yeah, the, in fact, yeah, I, I point that, you know, it's pointed out in the book, but the, I, I'm using these, and they, they, were, they, were, they were loosely used, but they were powerful technical terms invented to, to sort of service the eugenic engine. Um, uh, you know, if you had a particular level of intelligence, you were called an imbecile or a moron or a high-grade moron, low-grade moron, etc. But, but the point was that very soon, by the, by the late 1920s and the early 1930s, uh, even the courts in the United States ha- had uh, agreed that, in fact, uh, uh, men and women who had these kinds of hereditary traits um, should be uh, sterilized by state mandate. Um, and thereby, again, in, in in the in the hopes of improving human heredity, and um, many men and women were in fact sterilized uh, based on these grounds. And um, the story that I tell in the book um, is that of Carrie Buck, a young woman who was um, falsely, probably, found to have um, a, a, a hereditary uh, condition of imbecility. As I said, most likely because of of um, really manipulation of information by the state. And she was forcibly sterilized. Um, the, the case rose to the Supreme Court. And Oliver Wendell Holmes, the so-called judicial moderate, said um, three generations of imbeciles is enough. That word enough um, signals something, a kind of impatience with with, you know, let's just let's just get on with it. Um, you know, this is a time when Better babies contests were part of, uh, you know, a a, 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 a fair. You you go to a, a, a railroad fair or on the playground, and, and there'd be a better babies contest to select the best babies, etc. There were films about sterilization um, in in the United States. So that's the second phase, and the third phase is the one that we're most familiar with: is that that the idea then metastasizes to Germany, where from selective breeding and selective sterilization it morphs into selective extermination if you you know if if, if uh, in england you know we we, we could breed the better uh, humans in the united states we could sterilize them and thereby prevent them their births then in in, in nazi germany the, the logic was extended why not just exterminate them and on that grounds um, initially uh, the german scientists began to exterminate again following the united states um, those that are, con- are considered genetically genetic defectives this is their Terminology, and very soon that morphed into the idea that you know genetic defectives. Well, why not? You know, why not then exterminate racial defectives, um, and thereby the that that ultimately launched uh, what we know as um, sort of racial eugenics in Nazi Germany, the extermination of Jews and and other races as well.
0: Yeah, well, one clear variable here is just the the means of intervention available to us. So in a world where the only choice is between selective breeding, forced sterilization, and exterminating people. Well, clearly, those methods are so crude that they would only tempt people who are either fundamentally deranged by some ideology or lacking in compassion to a degree that is just pathological. What's
1: interesting, but let me interrupt this, though. Well, What's interesting is that is that I, I agree and disagree with that, and that's the point of part of the, of the first part of this book. in fact, when when the when the Victorians were speaking, or I should say when Gorton and his associates were speaking about uh, human heredity in this manner,
0: One thing I should say I think I spoke a little too loosely in grouping selective breeding with the other two. I mean I, I can' see how selective point. breeding is, is tempting exactly for that,
1: that, 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 that that in fact, the, the we should remember. Um, and we very remind, remind ourselves that this history uh, was a gradual stepping into into blood, as it were um, and and in fact the, it's not as if the Nazis all of a sudden one day woke up and said, "Oh, you know this would be a nice way to improve the human human race." Um, they followed um, the the road to uh, the, the the road to hell through the best genetic intentions of um, of of the progressives of the eighteen nineties and nineteen hundreds in the United States and and in, in England.
0: Yeah, yeah. And again, it it comes down to the technical means available. So for instance, if if the question is whether or not a person with a heritable disability should be allowed to have a child that will have that disability or will likely have that disability, that's a a very interesting and difficult ethical question depending on what the disability is and the the likelihood that Some as yet unborn child will inherit it, but it becomes a trivially easy question to answer in favor of intervention if the intervention is trivial to apply. So if you told me that, well, this aspiring mother who doesn't want the state to meddle in her life at all, you know, stands a a 99% chance of giving birth to a deaf child, say, but if she'll simply take this vitamin that's otherwise harmless, you know, twice during her pregnancy, the risk of this will be removed, well then, yeah, she, the state has an interest in ensuring she takes that vitamin, right? It would be criminally negligent on her part not to take that vitamin. And so there's a continuum from that you know, harmless and, and trivially easy intervention to the removal of her uterus, right, by a state.
1: So, so uh, again, uh, absolutely correct, but, but to remind uh, ourselves, uh, and we're fast-forwarding a little bit, but it's important to, but to keep, keep reminding ourselves that in, in, in reality, genetics, the, the genetic information in humans has turned out to be more complicated and thereby raised a spectrum of more complicated questions. Yeah. So, again, to use your analogy, to, to run along the structure of your analogy, for many diseases, um, the, the, the odds are, turn out not to be 99%. But turn out to be something like 20%, 30%. And some of these diseases are very dependent on other genes um, that 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 child would inherit, so the context, and on the environment. Um, Just to give you a very concrete example, and 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 this is a very intimate example because it happened to me recently. Um, I was uh, giving a a talk on cancer genetics, and after after that, a woman with a, a BRCA1 mutation, BRCA1 mutation, with a terrifying history of breast cancer, came to me to talk to me afterwards. Um, and she said her mother and her grandmother had died of breast cancer. Um, she, was, uh, she had had two children. She was thinking of, of having another one. The question she was asking is, should she and could she eliminate the uh, BRCA1 gene mutation forever from her lineage? And the answer is, if not now, very soon. Uh, basically, we have the technologies to allow her to do that. We have the technologies that you know she could do that by selectively implanting an embryo which lacks that genetic variation, and if in the future we might be able to do that by selectively changing the genomes of her sperm and egg carrying cells or making cells. So, um, but remember, in her case, the child will not have a ninety-nine percent chance. We actually, what's interesting about it is we we can't really predict. We can predict that the child who's born with the BRCA1 gene mutation um, will have a a, 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 a multiply higher-fold risk of having breast cancer in her future, and other cancers, but breast cancer in her future. But we cannot, looking at her genome or looking at her, tell you whether it's going to be at age 30, at age 60, at age 70. Is it going to be an indolent variant of cancer? It's going to be likely very aggressive? Um, where it's going to spread? All of this information is weirdly hidden from us. We can tell you that there is risk, and there's propensity for risk.
0: Is it a tenfold risk or something around there?
1: You know, actually, I don't know what the newest numbers are for BRCA1, um, but it, let's say tenfold.
0: Well, so unless the BRCA gene confers some other benefit that I'm unaware of, what would be the argument against eliminating it?
1: Well, the argument, it's, there's some arguments about it against eliminating it. BRCA1 is, a, is an intermediate example. I'll give you another more extreme examples in a second. but. But the the arguments against eliminating it right now are we don't know exactly whether we can we can use these technologies in a predictive way. If you think about uh the, the it's it's in the doing as it were. Um, if you think about um, the if you think about the 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 intervention into sperm and egg forming cells when we do these genetic interventions, we we're doing these in the lab with other genes, not with BRCA1, but with other genes that we've discovered. Um, when we're doing this in the lab, you know they have, they, these interventions, these technologies allow us to do powerful genetic interventions um, in stem cells. But they you know, they they sometimes miss and they reach a different target. They're off-target effects. Um, so that's one. The second one is that uh, the interventions that we are that we're doing um, often, as I said, occur in the context of other uh, of other genes. So we know very little about how other genes and environments influence it. Sure, BRCA1 will be an example of a, of a genetic uh, variation where we will ha- and are, are, are already and will allow genetic interventions in the future.
0: And in insofar as it gets simpler, if, if you go to something like cystic fibrosis, then it's a pretty easy decision, isn't it, to eliminate it? It is an e- it, well, it is an easy decision to allow the
1: elimination. Socially speaking, it's an easy decision to allow the elimination because of the because of the fact that that the disease that it's linked to causes extraordinary suffering whether an individual woman chooses to or not to exercise that decision i think should be left up to her um and 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 you know the point is that it, it, one of the things that the history is teaching us i think is that that state mandates are are not very not very successful here because they end up intervening on individual liberties um so um, the state, the states can provide guidance. Um, they can provide the options of what would happen. Um, but um, it seems to me that that once the state got into the business of, of uh, force, forcing a, a woman to have only one, you know, a, a prescribed kind of genetic lineage, I think for me that steps a little too far.
0: But now is that intuition of yours technology dependent? I think you're picturing kind of a forced in vitro conception as opposed to a natural one, whereas if the intervention could be as easily applied as taking a harmless pill, then do you still feel the same way about it? Again, I'm talking about cystic fibrosis.
1: I I think I would feel the same way, but I don't think it's intervention dependent. Um, I think it has to do with uh, uh, allowing uh, humans uh, the liberty to choose uh, what kind of heredity they choose to transmit. and there's some historical precedent for this. You know, um, obviously, uh, uh, Down syndrome is a, is a is a good uh, is an important historical precedent for this, which is that the the state provides guidance uh, as to what the um, what 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 the life of a, of a child with Down syndrome may be like. Um, and even there, we very 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 much know there's a wide spectrum. I mean, you know, Down syndrome is is um, has a wide spectrum. But, of course, there are important uh, medical consequences of Down syndrome. The state provides guidance, but it doesn't go and tell women that, you know, you can't have that child.
0: Right. It seems to me that cystic fibrosis is a clearer case. Maybe not the clearest possible, but getting there, both in the simplicity of the underlying genetics and in the cloud without a silver lining outcome, and then when you, when you try to map it on to other ethical imperatives, so for instance... Just a reminder, I mean, this is a
1: side note, Sam, but it's yeah. an important reminder. Uh, just a reminder to remind us that we think that the cystic fibrosis gene variant that now causes disease was likely selected um, at a time when uh, gastrointestinal disease like typhoid um, were rampant throughout Europe um, and that gene variant likely protected people from dying. Now, this is not... I, I'm not trying to be... Um, So you know, wax eloquent about a history that's long past. We are most countries in the United, in the West, do not have these threats of typhoid. But 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 just a reminder that these gene variants uh, were in some cases selected for very particular environmental conditions.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, that's a great point that I actually want to get to in in a slightly different context because that presents a fascinating limitation on our ability to use this technology, even if we get our heads straight ethically. But I'm just thinking back to the, to this particular intervention, the feeling that I should oblige my children to wear seatbelts, whether they want to or not, and whether I want them to or not, and that the state has an interest in my doing that because it's not much fun to see needlessly injured or dead children show up at the ER day after day when they could have just been wearing a seatbelt. Why isn't there a... Why isn't there a seatbelt law for genetics? Yeah, seatbelt law for unborn children on some level. Again, when the- I think
1: that, well, I think that you're, you're pointing out exactly the reason. The, 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 because seatbelts are, we, we do not, we, our aspirations and, and personhood um, are not linked in the same way to seatbelts as they are to, um, to heredity. Um, and that may be because of vast cultural uh, uh, reasons. Uh, it may be because of of, of an enormous um, particular interest in heredity, but but uh, but we have we we have carved out a special place uh, within ourselves, within our cultures, that says, look, the the, the autonomy that we have around heredity um, is an autonomy that that should be respected, unless there are truly extraordinary circumstances, and even when there are extraordinary circumstances, you know, I, I I've um, taken care of many. Uh, children with Down syndrome who have uh, leukemia. In fact, this is one of the terrifying things that happens. Um, And so there is no doubt that that is an extraordinary circumstance and there's extraordinary suffering involved. But even in such cases, um, we've decided, partly because of the history and partly because of the special place we've carved out for our aspirations around heredity, to provide strong guidance but not step beyond the lines of strong guidance. We've left it to
0: individuals. It's just a fascinating area, ethically, which I I haven't thought as much about as I I would like. Because just in hearing you say that now, it really is what we're privileging the aspirations of the parents over the experience of their future children in a way that wouldn't make a lot of sense if the children already existed.
1: Well, so, so, you know, there are several philosophers and biologists and geneticists who are grappling with this question now. So, you know, to what extent do you have to take into account the unborn voice of the, of the child? It really is. An, it's a fascinating and important debate. But the point here being that I've given you my perspective on, on this. But the point here being that it being that this debate will become increasingly central. Yeah. Increasingly central as we learn to read and write genomes more and more. Um, right now, uh, we are in a kind of learning phase, a steep learning phase of reading and writing. Um, we are like the child who's just begun to discover the language. Um, so again, to remind ourselves, if your if your genome was written out in, in in standard print, your genome, Sam, would be um, seventy or eighty full sets of the Encyclopaedia Britannica. Um, it, it would you know fill your whole house. Um, we are beginning to learn. Of course, you now know through gene sequencing that in fact the active parts of that encyclopedia—not the entire entire encyclopedia—but the active parts of the encyclopedia—you can you can obtain the sequence for for about two thousand odd dollars. The first one, the full sequence for the first human was was about three billion. That was in two thousand and one. Um, the prediction—I just came back from a conference in Seattle. The prediction is that it'll fall down to about three hundred dollars per person. Not the full genome, but the active parts of the genome. Um, so. Reading and writing that information, reading it in the sense, understanding what that code predicts for the future um, and and writing it, um, understanding uh, how and where to intervene on it, change one word in that seventy set encyclopedia, is going to be the central question, or well, one of the central questions that our children will face. and the conversation we just had to what extent should we mandate, to what extent should we dictate uh, are going to be questions that our children will grapple with this will and I and I keep making this point. These technologies to intervene on human heredity will seem will make the technologies that we seem to be obsessed with today, like social media, et cetera, seem like absolute child's play. They will brush them aside like a like a like a fly on a summer day, um, because they will get to again these very old um, human aspirations about controlling our children and ourselves.
0: Yeah, and just to point out the technological trend you just sketched there, that's. $3 billion down to $300 to sequence a, a genome in about, what, 20 years? That's a 10 million-fold reduction in the cost. It's incredible.
1: And, and the one thing I, I will add to this, and maybe we, we'll have time to discuss this, but just to, just, to, just to keep people current, we are currently using computational tools and human tools to inspect genomes, to read and write. And the amount of data that we've collected is quite small compared to the total amount there is. So, you know, tens of thousands of and maybe going into the hundreds of thousands of individual human genomes. But imagine now increasing that that uh, parent data set and then unleashing tools like deep learning uh, on 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 that data set and picking up patterns that would not be apparent to the human eye or potentially to even. Standard computational um, ways to mine information. Imagine now, for every human being being able to create a kind of predictive algorithm about their future. Um, it really distorts and has has an effect on how we think of ourselves. I'll give you one very concrete example. Um, another woman um, with the, keeping on the same breast cancer theme. Another woman with the BRCA1 gene mutation has two daughters, and she told me the story. Um, she was very concerned and got herself. Uh, sequenced for BRCA1 and her two children. The two daughters are 11 and nine. So, um, and one of them turned out to be positive uh, for the, carrying the mutation. So, the question which was immediately raised to me was you know, these children have not even developed rests. They are in their, in their adolescence. And yet, already the mother's relationship with one of them and both of them has fundamentally changed. She does not see her two daughters as the same anymore. Now imagine doing this not across one gene, but across the, you know, several thousand genes that human beings have. Um, parsing our, us in these kinds of propensities, parsing us in these kinds of probability, probabilities, even if they're probabilistic. Um,
0: well, that, that, that's, she, a, that's a point worth flagging because people will need to learn to think about probability in ways that are far more insightful and, and ethically relevant than they have been led to thus far. I mean, but we, we are, we're terrible about thinking about the implications of probability, and, and you can give people the same probabilities in different guises, you know, the probability of a loss versus the, the probability of a gain, and, and their feelings about the scenarios completely shift, and, and, and they've been given the same information.
1: And, that, and that's been documented in psychological study after psychological study, that same idea. But 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 yes, absolutely. Getting to that central point of 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 this, which is to say that, and let me be very clear about something, and and it's very clarified in the book many times. And let me be clear about it yet again: that um, in most cases, for most human features, genes are not autonomous. They interact with environments. They interact with chance to produce the ultimate feature. Most human features um, that we commonly see are the products of multiple genes, gene variants interacting with each other interacting with environments and interacting with chance. Um, So not only is there the probability of how the combinatorial business of the genome, which gene variants you inherit in what combination, but of course there's a role for the environment which which has to be factored in and may be factored in in the future and a role for chance uh, which may be factored in in the future.
0: And there's this additional problem which you just raised a moment ago which is that there's no clear boundary between what's wrong with us and what's right with us. It was, and this is a point you actually spell out in your book at some length. The genes that make people creative, for instance, could be some of the same genes, and it seems rather likely that some of them are, that predispose people to conditions like bipolar disorder. And I mean, there's, there's evidence, I, I think, with respect to intelligence as well, that, that some of the genes that are highly correlated with intelligence are also correlated with certain diseases like torsion dystonia. So it could just be, it may be that there's some, in the end, engineering solution by which we can get around this, but it could be that there will always be trade-offs here, that if you're going to grab the dial that can be turned in the direction of slightly more intelligence, or even much greater intelligence, or probability thereof, you you have your hand on the same dial that is increasing the likelihood that your child will be in a wheelchair. Well, I
1: mean, the examples that we know best, I gave you a couple. Um, cystic fibrosis is one of them. Um, that gene variant was selected for in, we think, in conditions where uh, endemic typhoid was rampant. Um, sickle cell anemia is another one. That gene variant was selected for uh, because it protects. Um, if, you have one, if you have one copy, it protects from uh, malaria and, and potentially cerebral malaria. Um, and and so you know there are there are more and more isolated examples of this um, over time, and we'll you know and I, I try to describe this very clearly in in the book, which is a, a, an idea which which medical geneticists began to have in the 1960s and 1970s, uh, particularly as we began to understand the human genome in terms of medical genetics. You know when the when the genome when the when genetics was an abstraction. or you know bacteria. This is what happens, and this is how regulation happens. An abstraction. Um, things had seemed somewhat simpler, but once you came into the human genome, all the things that you and I have talked about began to be true, or began to read true. Most human traits are not the product of single genes, but of multiple genes. Our capacity to manipulate multiple genes um, is fundamentally constrained, although changing. We'll come to that in a second. Um, the capacity to predict um, future phenotype, uh, future traits, future characteristics from a single genome remains in its infancy and may be fundamentally constrained because of environmental and chance effects. And the possibility that there are trade offs uh, in, 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 when you select for something that you inherently uh, toggle the switch in one direction and, and toggle the switch in the wrong direction for something else may be true for certain gene variants.
0: Again, the moment you start talking about this, you you feel the presence of of various taboos all around you, and um, there's just this fundamental fact that people are uncomfortable hearing about the genetic basis of of many things, I mean, certainly certainly mental traits and things like mental illness, because they they assume that spelling this out likely produces suffering in people and likely would lead to social policies that are counter to what we what we want ethically and politically. But I think we should also notice ways in which it can alleviate suffering in a very straightforward way. So you take the, a condition like schizophrenia, and, and this is something you discuss in your book, it used to be believed that this condition was produced by bad parenting and, and that you had this notion of a, a schizophrenogenic mother. And now we know that genes play an enormous role in this disease. And I think the concordance between identical twins is something around 80%. Just imagine having been among the, this generation of mothers who were blamed for the mental illness of their children and blamed in terms of a psychosexual mythology that was more or less invented out of whole cloth by Freud. I mean, it seems like a genetic understanding of a condition like schizophrenia. Is it just a huge ethical gain, and the gain arrives almost immediately?
1: Correct. So the, although you're, you're absolutely correct, we, we understand so much more and, and really have evolved a kind of a, a sense of a deeper understanding of schizophrenia. But also uh, the, the example of schizophrenia has reminded us that uh, in schizophrenia, uh, particularly in, in familial schizophrenia, the kind that my family has, we're yet to find um, powerful, genetic, uh, a, a mechanistic understanding of the disease. It will come, I believe. Uh, but, but in fact, yes, it's, it's alleviated certain kinds of ways of thinking about schizophrenia that were very incriminating and, and ultimately uh, destroyed uh, families and souls.
0: I want to mention something you said in, a, in your TED Talk, I believe, which struck me as fairly flabbergasting. You said of the, the estimated 1 million physiological pathways in the human body that can be targeted by medical therapies or cures for diseases, we can currently target about 250 of them.
1: Yeah, that number came, came from an article which I can send you at some point of time. Um, obviously, it's a, it's a little bit of a guesswork there, right? So um, uh, someone tried to estimate the number of biological pathways for which there are t- targets exist, and that number's increasing. But yes, I would say ballpark, that sounds right to me.
0: On its face, that's a very depressing ratio, although the the flip side is that it suggests an almost limitless promise of medicine in the future. I mean, if what we're doing now is just the tiniest, tiniest fraction of what could conceivably be done with more or less the technology we already have, which is to say, you know, pharmacology, you can see it one of two ways. It's either depressing or, or a picture of, of limitless promise.
1: Sure, and this is one 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 important piece to intervene on that, which is that there's a denominator problem, which is that um, the, the the parts of that equation that are responsible for disease or can be uh, manipulated for enhancement um, may be a tiny fraction to start with. In other words, um, much of the uh, much of the much of these pathways, these proteins, these, uh, uh, the, the, the consequential cogs and wheels, much of them might be sort of the, the bedrock on which human physiology and structure and form are built. And therefore, intervening on them wouldn't, I, would neither enhance nor, uh, nor cure disease. It would basically either create a dysfunctional human being or, 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 or none at all. So we don't know what part, what fraction, it's a denominator problem, we don't know what fraction of those million-odd pathways, uh, uh, cogs and wheels, as it were, what fraction of them are relevant in human pathology and what fraction can be manipulated for, if you're interested in enhancement, what fraction can be manipulated uh, for enhancement.
0: Now, what's the state of genetic medicine at the moment? And perhaps you want to talk about CRISPR here and, and, and whether you think it will fulfill its promise.
1: So genetic medicine is a very wide term. So it's probably better to be a little bit narrower about it because, uh, you know, some people would claim every medicine is, all kinds of medicine is genetic medicine. So, you know, ultimately, diseases act on uh, proteins and pathways, which are themselves the product of genes. So you could make the argument. So let's talk particularly about gene therapy. Maybe that's a natural way to restrict it. So there, there are a couple of ways to imagine gene therapy. Um, but the big, uh, the bright line distinction is between so-called somatic gene therapy and germline gene therapy. Um, and, and in full disclosure, I'm involved in, 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 uh, in, in quite a lot of somatic gene therapy work. So, um, so, so let me just uh, walk us through these terms. Uh, so somatic comes with the word soma, uh, which means body. So this is gene therapy in which you're either introducing a gene, foreign gene, foreign material, or any kind of genetic material into a cell, often into a stem cell in a human body, and that cell divides, replicates, or maybe doesn't divide, nonetheless, contains that altered genetic information and thereby changes its function and and starts doing a different function. So a a classic example would be an attempt to put the functioning version of a um, functioning version of a clotting factor gene in people who have a hereditary problem with blood clotting, uh, such as hemophilia. So That is distinct from so-called germline gene therapy, in which what what the attempt is is to change the genetic information in a cell that's capable of producing sperm and eggs, Um, and ultimately, once it once it does produce sperm and eggs, it basically now carries on, goes on to the next generation, and then in perpetuity, it carries on forever. So that's a bright line distinction between somatic and germline gene therapy, and until the 19 90s, 2000s, the first attempts were in germline gene therapy using things like viruses. So viruses can carry genetic material into cells. Um, uh, The particular viruses that have evolved over millennia to carry genetic material into cells, you can manipulate those viruses, you can insert genes into them, and then thereby allow those viruses to bring genetic material into human cells. um, And that's one kind of gene therapy. And then this this world was turned somewhat upside down um, by the discovery of new technologies to change uh, uh, genetic information. And the one that that is his, that that most people will want to know about is a technology called CRISPR and Cas nine. Now, do you want me to go into the technology or or, or, to, or to tell you what the what the what the upshot of the uh, the, the the upshot is? How, how detailed do you want to get?
0: it? You could make a gloss on the on the actual. Mechanics of it, but more the upshot. I think.
1: Yeah. So, so the the, the glossing over the mechanics of it. The upshot is that uh, CRISPR and Cas nine is an ancient, uh, are parts of an ancient uh, bacterial system that allow us to make intentional cuts in uh, a genome of choice. And why is that? Why is that relevant? again, to return to the encyclopedia analogy, you could go into um, you know the the encyclopedia and say go to page 347 in volume um, 16 and and cut the word ATGC there and and hopefully only there. Um, we'll come back to that in a second, but hopefully only there, sparing everything else. Um, and if you combine it with some other techniques, not only can you make the cut there, you can replace that ATGCC with a CTGCC or a GTGCC. So, obviously, you know, what if that is the BRCA1 gene? Or what if that's the cystic fibrosis gene? Um, and what if you make those changes not in a cell that's a somatic cell, but a germline cell, a cell that is sperm and eggs? So, so CRISPR and Cas9, among other things, these kind of bacterial systems, i don't want to, they're, they're really systems or technologies that allow us to make intentional, deliberate changes in genomes. And that we couldn't do easily with, uh, with the kind of viral-based gene therapies that we had in the past. Um, so they allow a, a comp- an unprecedented level of being able to manipulate uh, genomes and potentially not only genomes of other organisms, uh, mosquitoes, parasites, pests, crops, et cetera, but also, of course, the human genome. And, and if you combine these technologies with what we are learning about um, stem cells, sperm and egg-producing stem cells, then all of a sudden you have the kinds uh, you have a really unprecedented power to be able to manipulate the germline of organisms and humans in the future
0: that's yeah. the option yeah and obviously the the bright line between the somatic therapy and the germline is that all future descendants now inherit whatever changes you make as opposed to the single person you have provided the therapy to but you know i guess in in certain cases that strikes me as a, a very easy decision, and in others an impossible one and it's it does come down to just the probabilities involved and how sure we are we know what the effects will be of our of our intervention.
1: Right, so there's a nest of questions. There are a nest of ethical questions, and there's a nest of biological questions or technical questions, and of course, they're interrelated they they crisscross with each other, and you're pointing out all all of them. so some of them are biological and technical questions. you know what are the off target effects? what is the likelihood that we'll get hit that? Particular word in the encyclopedia and by mistake not erase another word on page you know 476. Um, so that's those are technical biological questions. But then of course there are other questions like uh, you know under what circumstances should we allow this? Um, and and this goes brings us back full circle with, as I said, the National Academy uh, report, which other other academies, other panels around the world will eventually produce their own versions of this but um, but but in that case and, and in and in the gene um, we identify i try to identify some circumstances where we're beginning to open up this uh, germline technology
0: there's also some ethical questions surrounding this work that really just go to the, the sociology of science i guess first of all there there are patent fights between the developers of crispr right i think it's the broad institute and and berkeley and then there's just this whole phenomenon of having government-funded work that is, in effect, privately owned and becomes hugely profitable, and then you basically you have the public paying twice for the results of this work. How do you view the ethics of enriching yourself based on research that was taxpayer-funded? I mean, is there something interesting to sort out there?
1: Yeah, many of the interesting things, things to sort out there um, I, I've written a little bit about the patent issues around genetics um, in 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 the gene. Uh, you know it's it's so new this arena is that the courts are still trying to figure out what to, how to make sense of it and just the case to point out was the brca one gene mutation was, was there was an attempt to patent uh, the testing for that gene mutation um, because uh, after all, that was the product of discovery of 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 scientists but on the other hand, uh, you could say, well, why is a BRCA1 gene mutation any different from your nose? It, it's a part of your body. Uh, it's a part of the human body. Um, so where is the invention there? So it, it was a series of complicated debates that ensued. But of course, this has been carried to its next level with, with the debates around gene editing, uh, these technologies that allow you to intervene on, on genetic information in, in a deliberate manner, um, and the two sides of the debate are um, sure these tools are borrowed from the microbiological world. So bacteria invented them, really, through evolution. Um, but uh, they were refined and changed and programmed and reprogrammed by individual scientists. So there's so the one concern. One concern is should these be patentable at all? That's question one. The second question is um, who made the discovery first? What's the evidence that? Any one of the teams made the discovery first, and the third set of questions, which is, is um, if the discovery was in fact paid for through government dollars, uh, should individuals or companies be allowed to uh, use uh, these same kinds of d- d- tools to sell them back to us, as it were? I'll tell you my views on on all three of these questions, um, but of course they differ. So in in reverse order, should 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 they be allowed? I think you know I think as a, as I think it's important to keep the cycle of innovation alive, I think it's important to give important incentives, substantial incentives to scientists as they bring the products of their science into human lives. Um, Cancer is one example um, that I see on a daily basis. I think most people would feel that the structure of of incentives currently, it has has moved, the needle has tipped way too far. I'm speaking for myself, and that we need to be able to identify inventions that are that uh, for which where the line of credit and substantial um, uh, substantial compensation is given, and when that line gets crossed. So it's a case by case question, uh, as you can imagine. This is richly, hotly contested. There's no one formula here. I think, uh, richly and hotly contested a- arena. Um, Many people, including myself, feel that um, the first movers, the original inventors, should be given substantial uh, 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 rewards. The people who come later and, and sort of pile onto them, the me-toos, um, should be given much less. I also feel that the patents should not be extended indefinitely based on, you know, creating new applications for them. But much of the reward should come up front. But once you're done, you're done. Um, but so these are these are sort of the gory details, as it were. The, se- the second and the third question I'll answer quickly in the interest of time. The, the second question was, um, uh, or one question was, um, should these be patentable? I think in the case of CRISPR and Cas9, the amount of human intervention that went into the process after the initial discovery is substantial. Uh, a lot of things had to be done. Things had to be hooked together. Uh, the, the, the biological system invented by microbes, uh, by b- bacteria, was designed to kill viruses, uh, to chop their genomes and DNA up we redesigned it to focus it on the human genome and in a programmable way. So I think there's a good case to be made that there was uh, substantial innovation involved.
0: I should say that anyone who wants to patent my nose is free to do it. It's broken at least once, and uh, I consider it a Creative Commons nose. So
1: <laughs> and mine is not particularly attractive either, so I'm, I'm happy
0: to give it up. So um, I have one bone to pick with you. I wasn't necessarily planning to bring this up, but it's become a sore spot for me personally in my life. And you sort of bumped into it. I recently had Charles Murray on the podcast. Yeah. And am now, as you might predict, being attacked as a racist in certain circles for merely having had a perfectly cordial conversation with him. And many listeners in anticipation of, of this podcast with you have reminded me that you were more critical of Murray in your book than I was when I had him on the podcast. And so they, they want us to discuss this. So, I, you know, I don't, we don't have to spend a lot of time on this. And we certainly don't have to spend a lot of time on Murray. We can talk about the, just the general question of intelligence. But I read, obviously, what you wrote in your book. And then I went back and read the relevant chapters in the bell curve. And it seems to me that, like nearly everyone who writes about Murray, you seem to feel under considerable pressure to distance yourself from his reputation. And in my view, this led you to make at least a couple of obvious mistakes. But to really get into this, I would have to read the passages from your book out loud on the podcast, which I'm not going to do, and I would have to read a fairly long passage from Murray.
1: Well, I can summarize. I can summarize our differences, and I think they're not—I don't think they're mistakes. I think they— well, Let me just—let um, me
0: flag one, because I, I know—so there's one difference which I do want to talk about, which is not necessarily a mistake, and it's definitely a point of valid debate, but there. are were a couple of moves you made there that struck me at the very least sloppy, and I just want to flag them for you and and listeners so that so that they can go look at both books if they care, and you can go back and look at what I'm talking about. Because I feel like, I mean, to take just one example, the use you made of there was a transracial adoptee study. There's a there was a study of kids that had one or two biological parents who were black and they were adopted by white parents, right? And so this was a there's a study by by Scar and Weinberg. And you cite this study pointing out that the adopted children had a mean IQ of 106, and this, that's even higher than the white average. And you single this out as, as some of the strongest evidence that the, the IQ testing was was biased. But Scar and Weinberg did a follow-up study, which is again described in the same paragraph in Murray's book that significantly muddied the waters that that showed that racial iq was stratified in their follow-up study and you don't cite that study right which is so when you go back to look at murray after reading your book this seems like a fairly glaring oversight at least but this again this is something that's hard to parse without just reading the text i should just say honestly this is not a topic that has ever interested me it's like I, i i simply wanted to talk to murray after I saw what happened to him at Middlebury, and where I realized with some degree of shock that I had always assumed that where there was that much smoke, there had to be fire. And I assume that when, when you have people like Richard Nisbet calling you a racist and a pseudoscientist, you must be guilty of something. But you know, now I have Nisbet calling me, or at least insinuating, that I'm a racist and a pseudoscientist. I mean, as, as recently as 24 hours ago, he published a piece in in Vox magazine, which is completely confused, responding to the podcast I did with Murray.
1: So actually, I haven't listened to so I have listened to the podcast with Murray, but let, let me tell you what I think the substantive yeah. issues are, um, and, and I'll try to summarize them, and then okay, not but going Let me to the just
0: piece. just finish this, this final point, because yeah. my interest here is not in the genetics of intelligence and certainly not in racial disparities in intelligence genetic or otherwise i've always felt that looking for racial differences in anything is a dubious thing to do or at least i haven't heard a good justification for it but what i'm very interested in is in the way in which it's becoming impossible to talk about facts when they brush up against these taboo rails and and the toxicity of this it's just very difficult to digest in one's life. And when I look at it, I mean, I can't imagine how Murray has felt these last 23 years. This is a man who has been treated incredibly unfairly. And, and again, I would argue that you are by no means a glaring example of this, but even in your case, I feel that if you go back and look, you will discover that he was not hiding the ball the way you claimed he was hiding the ball, and that you are, that you are, not making a totally fair use of what was in his book. So I just invite you to go look at that again, but let's talk well, about so, what you so want to talk had, about.
1: No, I've, not only have I read Charles, but actually have, I've had correspondence with Charles in the pre-publication stage of this book. Right. So, so um, at, the, at some point in time, we can, I'm happy to share that. And it was, uh, you know, it, was a, it was an extremely civil correspondence. I wanted to get to the heart of the issue. Um, the, the point that you're making about the Scar-Weinberg study and, and subsequent studies is exactly right. There were muddy studies. Um, and the 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 central point in, in the gene is to point out number one that there were muddy studies, and to draw strong conclusions from muddy studies in either direction, is is unwarranted. That is the that is the point that I leave in the book. It's just, it is which is to say that so it's it's an un, it's unfair to say that oh you know did I do an in you know this is this is that and that is the the the, the counter. So let me give you what I think is is the the, the three questions, and I'll tell you my thoughts about them. I think Charles is thoughtful about these. Um, I, I I worry that he that you know he has he has overinterpreted Muddy studies. That's not a crim- That's not a criminal thing to do. It is a, the job of a very thoughtful journalist to try to interpret Muddy studies. But it's equally important to remind us that the studies are are inconclusive on several aspects. So let me just split the question into three questions.
0: But before you do that, I just I just want to again we got to be. Forgive me if, as a host, I begin to speak a little more defensively here, but we're recording this podcast really just like as a tsunami of criticism is breaking over me for my podcast with Charles. So yes, some studies are certainly muddy and, and the data is not in on everything, but there are some findings where the jury really is no longer out.
1: So, so let me, so, yeah, so interrupt me if you think that the jury, that, that, I'm, that I'm muddying, muddying studies okay, that are, yes. are not, yeah, fine. So the question number one, question number one is, does the IQ test uh, predict, uh, is, it a, is it a great surrogate for intelligence? So um, I would say the following, which is that this is this issue has is been studied, although much is to be done in the future, and it depends on who you ask. So if, 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 you're, if, if it's about uh, certain aspects of performance, sure, it predicts certain aspects of performance in this world. But it actually is, is a relatively poor predictor of other aspects of performance, um, including aspects of academic performance. so uh, in in some cases, it correlates highly with um, with how you will perform in the world. In, in other cases it it correlates rather poorly with how you will perform in the world. I think that's what the jury that's that's the general case of what the jury says. Would you agree that
0: with that? Well yeah th- this is a great way to proceed. Let's just go point by point so in certain cases, that's true, but that's it's a slightly tendentious way of describing it. So, for instance, IQ for certain things is necessary but not sufficient. Or having a high IQ is necessary but not sufficient. So there are other things clearly, like motivation and ability to defer pleasure, right? You do, and and set goals. I mean, these these are, are features that don't aren't necessarily tied to IQ and have a lot to do with the in terms of explaining differential success between people, but if you're going to tell me, you know, what's your prospect of success as a theoretical physicist with a, an IQ of a hundred, not great. Yes, but the point, uh, I agree with that, but the point here is to clarify and say,
1: say that the world is not made of theoretical physicists. That's the true. world is made That's of very, very different people, some people who, you know, uh, uh, it's made of Lee Krasners and theoretical physicists and people who are athletes and and Queen Elizabeth. Uh, um, but so, another way of
0: of saying that is that intelligence is not the only thing we value, or that will get you good outcomes in life. But there is. Let's talk about the. You have a quibble with with the how we define intelligence, which are, which I think is right right at the heart here. So talk about the problem in defining this notion of general intelligence by correlating the outcome of an iq test with differential success in life because you talk about that so, in the book.
1: you know I, i'm 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 a cancer scientist and a geneticist one of the things that i'm always looking for is 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 what's called a you can call it a gold standard or or, or what this what's the standard by which it will be judged in other words when we measure something what are we trying to correlate that what is, what what is the end point of that by which the, what is an independent or a non-dependent variable that we can use to judge whether what we're measuring is worthwhile measuring or not. And uh, the but the but the point is that when we use the word intelligence, that is a powerful, culturally loaded word. We're saying very much about we're not talking about the performance on a test. We're talking about a very culturally loaded word. And so my point here is that it would be helpful if uh, I'll do a counterexample. If it turned out that the IQ test was correlated 100 percent with uh, performance in diverse activities in the world, um, ranging from you know LeBron James to Queen Elizabeth. I would say, fine, you know that's that's a good test. Currently, the the, the current format of the test seems to predict something about our capacity to process information in a particular way. What its use in the in the real world is, I'm not so sure about. It. And that's what, that's that's the first thing I'm saying about. The, 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 you know so don't confuse the IQ test with the word intelligence.
0: Well, well, actually, I think you say something different in your book, which is seems to be granting that there is a fairly strong correlation between the results of an IQ test and success in areas where the canonical notion of general intelligence is valuable. So, for instance, canonical
1: notion exactly correct. The right. canonical notions of so in other words. This, there's a circularity in this test, which, which does not apply to the broad real world. So let's say that we agree on, on, on these disagreements. Can I go on to the second piece? Because it's, it's relevant.
0: Before you do, there, there seems to be a bit of confusion here because it does apply to the broad real world. It's just that the broad real world has been made by the same people who make IQ tests. So I mean, to, to make this simple, like so if an IQ test puts great weight on the size of a person's vocabulary. And then we find that people with big vocabularies succeed in academia. This is a circular justification because the, it's the, the same people in academia. I agree with the, that. That's the, that's the point that yeah. I make several times in the book. I agree with yes. 100%. Yes. yes. Okay. I just wanted to make that clearly stated.
1: So the second question, which is relevant here, um, is whether testing on the IQ test is heritable or inheritable. So a very important point. And um, so, and it's very important to distinguish between those two words, heritable and inheritable. So when we talk about something being heritable, we're asking the question, is there a powerful or not powerful, moderate genetic component to it? When we talk about something being inheritable, we're asking the question, how likely is it that that set of genes or or components marches across generations in an intact form? So clearly understood? Yep. So the way we measure her- the, the question of whether something is heritable or not is through twin studies. And um, I very clearly point out, and I in fact, this, I, I owe this to this correspondence with Charles Murray in which uh, it is, uh, I think it is uh, very believable that the results of the IQ test are moderate to highly heritable. In other words, twins share concordance in, in, such, uh, in such affairs. We also know, based on studies of, of identical versus fraternal twins, that multiple genes and gene environment interactions are probably involved because no single gene is, uh, seems to be highly correlated individually. There are certain genes that have been looked at, and we talked about some of them. So the direct consequence of that is that IQ is a very is, is one of the many human features, which is heritable, but not easily inheritable.
0: Right. So I agree with that, but just to give some context here, we are now speaking in a context where Murray and now I get attacked for saying that IQ is significantly heritable, and when this is, in fact, one of the most consistent findings in behavioral genetics. In fact, Robert Ploman and colleagues just published an article, I think three months ago, titled... The top 10 replicated findings in behavioral genetics and the heritability of IQ is one of them. So, this is like this is one of the things that is just not up for grabs.
1: But but that's correct. I mean, you know, so I I think that you, at least with me, uh, with with the gene, you can't find fault with the distinction between heritability and inheritability. I think people use that language incorrectly. We should be using that language correctly. Uh, Heritability is not the same as inheritability. And when you say something is heritable, you're not saying something is inheritable. That's, that's just because those two words have similar derivations. But if people want to engage in this debate with you and, and Charles and other people, they should look at the literature, um, and the answer
0: is yes. And just to spell out another point here, and, th- and again, this is what's so crazy-making about this, is that most of the criticism I see of Murray, and certainly most of the criticism I have seen of my conversation with him, relies on asserting that we claim things that we didn't and ignoring things that we in fact said. So one point to make here is that even if something like intelligence is highly heritable, you know, 80% say uh, heritable, you don't know to what degree an individual's intelligence was the product of environmental influence. Let me take a, a clearer case that just is not charged and it's The case that I brought up with Murray, something like height is unambiguously heritable. And if we found an island of people who were, you know, five feet tall, just knowing that they're five feet tall wouldn't tell us that they don't have the genetic ability to be as tall as the Dutch, because we'd have to find out whether they're they're being systematically stunted, say, by malnutrition. You don't know based on the outcome whether. There, it's a genetic explanation for what you see.
1: And, and in fact, I, this is the very example that I, I use in the gene. Um, you know, when you look at a plant, I, use the word, I used a plant instead of a human being. When a plant grows to a certain size, you don't know whether that size is the product of nutrition or the soil or the environment or its genes.
0: Yes. Okay. We agree about that, it seems, perfectly.
1: Yeah, so so I, I, I'm sorry again about the slack, but it seems to me that there's a fundamental misconception um, about uh, the difference between heritability and inheritability. Um, you won't find any b- beef with me, I think, uh, in asserting that G and what 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 the IQ test measures, and you have some, you and I have some disagreement with what it, exactly it measures, but what it measures is heritable, but not easily inheritable.
0: So. Let's talk about what it measures, because I, I agree with you that there is clearly some cultural construction. I, I, so, so I want to go back to the point we were we were discussing a few moments ago.
1: But you want me to finish the third question or you want to go on? Oh, sure. Yeah. The third question, which, which we can also spend a lot of time. So the first question we ask is, what does IQ measure, what its relationship with the real world is, and the circularity of that argument? The second question is, the distinction between heritability and inheritability of, of iq we, we I, I agree with charles about this in fact it it would be hard to find data against this the third question is the, is the racial genetics so we agree we've talked about the first two to what extent um, is is race then um, has has to do with to what extent does it have to do with iq now things that are heritable but not inheritable tend not to uh, run in, in races even if you construct them for the simple reasons because of, of, of Mendelian genetics. Number two is that the, the, the gene spends a lot of time questioning the idea of what a race is. The Victorian idea of race is being rapidly reconstructed today, uh, rapidly and dramatically being reconstructed and is re- being reconstructed in terms of geographic distributions. So the, the, the old ideas of, div- of dividing races, we've turned out genetically speaking, Are likely to contain lump people into categories where they fundamentally don't belong because of their background and because, particularly, of their racial and genetic, sorry, not their racial, but their geographic background. So, this is just to say that extraordinary claims demand extraordinary evidence. And the first attempts to answer the third question, um, to my mind, have not risen to that extraordinary evidence in implicating or, or cross segregating races with IQ, because the the, the term race itself is being redefined right now.
0: But in my understanding, all of these data, and and I I think there is a lot, you can view it as agnostic with respect to the the reality of race or the the actual race of any of the subjects, but it's just based on how people self-identify with respect to race.
1: Fair enough. That self-identification could be circular, uh, but yes, fair enough.
0: So, I mean, you have, we have a tradition of people self identifying with respect to the race they think they are, whether or not race is a valid concept. And then we're getting a persistent and incredibly annoying difference in the mean performance on IQ tests, on SAT tests, on tests of everything in this area. And this is the thing that is so toxic to talk about.
1: It's not toxic to talk about once we realize what the limitations, at least for me, it's not toxic to talk about once we realize, as we've done now, sequentially, realize what the fundamental uh, limitations and advantages of each of these individual components are. It's not toxic to talk about as long as we understand the pieces of the puzzle. That allows, I think, us to think about questions like, how circular is this definition? How much does it rely on particular um, constructions of tests? How much is the environment? Uh, is motivation a factor in someone taking a test or not? Um, is, is the self-identification of race real? The, the point is that there, to me, um, I, and I know this is not true for Charles, but to me, um, the, each of these individual components, if you were to think about this as a vast machine, each of these individual components um, seems to have enough fuzziness to it that making a conclusion about the vast machine and then making social policy conclusions about the big machine is is more suspect than i think charles thinks it is this is not to say that these are you know these are important questions but they they they're, you know there's an incredible amount of fundamental slippage in vocabulary and i hope again by having this conversation at, at least we are getting through some of those slippages of vocabulary
0: yeah well but i don't think Murray is guilty of the slippage that is attributed to him, I and mean, the problem for me is that there is this fictional version of his work and and of the man that has been manufactured in response to the bell curve and then you have everyone reacting to that fiction, and you know he you know he's someone who is still can't stand up at a university and give a talk without some reasonable threat of of violence
1: I told you my I told you my own correspondence with Murray was extremely civil yeah, we talked yeah. we talked about we talked we exchanged letters and thought about genetics and I told him about you know some of these fundamental concerns or disagreements I have one last piece that I'm going to tell you which I think is important um, to all of this and that is that, that goes into a, a, a kind of philosophical question it's not about data crunching but it's a philosophical question about what we look for in the human genome when we, def- my argument, which is actually probably the most important argument in that section of the gene, when we look for performances in particular tests, the more we define the test as a surrogate for whatever it might be, chances are that we will find genetic determinants of that. So I'll, I'll give an example. If we, if we decided as a society that beauty was having blue eyes, then sure enough, you'd find a gene or a set of genes that uh, were correlated with having blue blue eyes, and you would decide that beauty is genetic. This, again, gets to the whole point which you are trying to make, which is my fundamental beef with all of this. is not the validity or the heritability of the test. My fundamental problem is that, these are, that, that there's a circularity in these arguments. And if we, I mean, the genome is narcissist-reflected. If we look for narrow traits, we'll find narrow traits in the genome. I believe that um, if we define athletics in a very narrow way, as the as the capacity to um, run a particular distance for a particular amount of time, there will be genetic correlates of that idea. And you and I can then have a discussion about you know what the world would be like if we all of a sudden widen the definition of athletics to include playing chess uh, or uh, uh, you know definition of sports to include uh, playing some other game that has nothing to do with with, with the particular definitions that we have today. My point here is the following, which is that as we enter what is clearly a toxic arena, um, we just have to be very careful in dissecting, methodically, in a clear-eyed manner, without assigning blame or ascribing blame, what parts of the machine have data that is powerful and functional, Versus what parts of the machine I have data, which is uh, which is more suspect because of a vast historical, cultural, and uh, frankly racist apparatus that has surrounded this country and other countries for years. That's all I'm trying to say.
0: So I want to press on this point just for a couple more minutes, and then I think this will be the last thing we talk about on this topic. And then I don't want to. I know your time is getting short, as is mine, and I do want to ask you a few questions about cancer, but this is this is just too interesting to leave right here. I take your point that we could make arbitrarily narrow definitions of anything and then test for them, and then we would find that you know there, there was a genetic advantage in one group or another for that thing, and that would be a strange thing to do. But the definition of something like intelligence and even athleticism, I think is a perfect analogy, or, or at least a very good one, isn't as arbitrarily circumscribed as all of that to take athleticism. Our notion of, a, of what it is to be a great athlete is based rather obviously on the various ways we can interact with the world. And there are clearly attributes, r- rather generalizable attributes like strength and speed and agility and hand-eye coordination and probably even things like body symmetry, right? And the underlying genetics of all of that that correlate with success, not only in basically every sport you can name, but everything you could conceivably ev- invent. Let me stop you right there. I know where you're going. I mean, there, there are some trade-offs, right? So if you want to be... Profound trade-offs. they are profound trade-offs, a weightlifter and, and a marathon runner.
1: Chess player, if you could be into sports, not just athletes, a chess player versus a You know, a a, a long jumper.
0: Okay, but again, you can only this is only so elastic here because yes, we can understand those trade-offs within a a larger footprint of what it means to be a great athlete. But when you take someone like Bo Jackson, okay, who for those who don't recall, and he's one of the few people who played two professional sports, right? He he played football and baseball at the highest level. Now. It is not a stretch to say that whatever that if you came up with a definition of athleticism that excluded him, you've got a pretty weird definition. Now, he's not going to be the world's greatest marathoner. I, I, I would doubt that. But in the space of all possible sports, there is very unlikely to be a sport where I'm going to be better than Bo Jackson. You know, if you've got us at the same age and gave us the same training in the new sport, I'm not saying I'm I'm an especially terrible athlete but but I'm just saying there's a real I am. Okay, okay. Then he then Bo, Bo Jackson is going to beat you at this new sport if it it all relies on strength world, and speed. But
1: the world has turned away from that kind, you know, basically we're we're finding less and less of such general sportsmen. Uh, Bo Jackson would do terribly against a very average Kenyan marathoner. Um, he would do terribly against a relatively average uh, basketball player, I would imagine today. I don't know. I don't know the, the particular thing. But the point there is that the world has become, in its, in its newness, in its refinement, in its diversity, whether you like it or not, you dislike it, you, you, whatever it might be, that the idea, in fact, of the general sportsman has become less and less relevant today.
0: But it's still not completely irrelevant. And it's still, I mean, it's it's still highly relevant. Again, I mean, I would just say that I I, I would bet on Bo Jackson against me. According
1: to the sports world, go go check out who's running the marathon today. How many general sportsmen are in the marathon But
0: that's an extremely unique, phenotypic case. It's not emblematic of most sports, right? And then it remains to be seen whether such trade-offs exist I mean, this could be where the, the analogy breaks down. I'm not so sure there are such trade-offs with respect to intelligence. And once we build super intelligent machines, right? I mean, imagine building a machine that's better than us at everything we can plausibly call a cognitive task. Well, then in the presence of such a machine, this conversation we're having is going to seem pointless. I mean, then we're, we're, we, it's going to be like chess all the way down, right? The machine is just better than, than us at Facial recognition, memory, arithmetic, chess, and everything else we can name, it's not clear that you're going to get the Kenyan marathon or trade off where we'll be able to point to the thing that the machine can't do and will never do.
1: Fair enough. I don't, I don't, I, that doesn't convince me in either direction. I mean, one thing that we know a little bit about, so I mean, I've been thinking a little bit about uh, machines and machine intelligence in medicine. The one thing that we know is that um, when you have a machine, maybe this is relevant, when you have a machine, that's been partially trained on one algorithm it tends to do better on other algorithms but, but you can read that as the cup half full and half empty the cup half full would say that sure that you know there's there's some kind of general ability that's been acquired by this machine that now allows it to to uh, to do refinement in other algorithms well
0: we're not there yet with machines i mean it's it's, it's clear that we're just there's nothing like general intelligence emerging in machines, even though we do have some general purpose algorithms. It's not, I mean, they're, they're still well, well, that's general true, that's within a just saying. I mean, I,
1: I, the, the machine analogy doesn't help me very much because I don't know enough, we don't know enough about the structure of, of the way of knowledge acquisition, skill acquisitions, and, and potentially reason uh, acquisition in, in machines. Uh, we'll learn, but I, I'm not sure we know enough.
0: Take another machine who, that, that we do know a little bit about. I mean, take someone like John von Neumann, right? And so any definition of general intelligence that excluded John von Neumann or where he didn't rank extraordinarily high would be a bad definition, given the man's talents. And it's hard to see a lot of trade-offs there. Now, was he the world's greatest poet? Probably not. But it's... Well, you just gave an example. But he, the idea that he would be a bad poet seems rather far-fetched. Did he write any poetry? I have no idea.
1: It's a hypothetical. So I, anyway, I mean, you know,
0: but, but every
1: example that you've come up with has exactly these kinds of endemic problems, right? So
0: My point is, we didn't arrive at our definition of intelligence purely by accident or by whim. It's not like we just got fascinated with blue eyes and blonde hair and said, that's, that's beauty for all time.
1: But we did arrive at it, Sam, by, by, a, by, by a process of historical and cultural mechanisms. And my point again is my point again is that there is a circularity there, and that's all. I'm, I'm not saying you know I, I will grant and I have granted to um, to people who've measured these qualities that in fact the qualities correlate. They're highly they're highly correlated with actually they're highly correlated through life. It doesn't. It's not like they're stochastically vanishing, coming and vanishing. That would be even a bigger problem. But they don't. Um, well, they
0: get more correlated through yeah. life.
1: So all of this accepted. Um, I think you know just to not to track this on, but all of this accepted. I actually haven't, I didn't listen to that particular podcast, but um, I think, um, I feel badly that, uh, that, that, you know, you're being blamed for something, you know, people aren't listening to exactly what you're saying. All of that said, um, my, you know, this is a relatively small section of the gene, but my, my argument will be that it has been that there's a circularity and narrow things are often found in the genome, if you define them narrowly, and those narrow definitions arise, you're right, not entirely by whim, but by a combination of of historical circumstance, which is worth questioning. That's yeah. all I'm
0: saying. Okay, well, listen, first I just want to apologize to have ambushed you with this particular topic, because it's just the weird conjunction of... What you wrote and what is happening on other podcasts to me, yeah I actually I after. was not
1: aware of it entirely, uh, but uh, you know I was in a book signing, and someone said, "Oh, you know you're going to talk about this and I said only f- people yeah, this is six this is six pages of a six hundred page book yeah. so
0: well you're 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 a good sport here, and I appreciate you uh, getting into the weeds with me, but obviously, one of the things we want intelligence for, insofar as we've defined it is for people like you to cure cancer sooner rather than later. And I just want to take a few minutes to talk about cancer. Unfortunately, this is not informed by my having read your much-celebrated book, The Emperor of All Maladies, on the topic. But it's probably safe to say that everyone listening to this podcast has either had or will have some encounter with cancer. They're either going to get it or someone close to them will. My father died of cancer. I have a close member of my family who just went through a major ordeal with it. It, Amazingly, he seems to be someone who is among the tiny percentage of people who who seems to have successfully treated uh, or been treated for stage four pancreatic cancer. First, I want to ask you why does cancer have this unique status? I mean, why, why are people left battling cancer? You don't hear of people battling heart disease. Is this based on the The range of treatments that that exist for it, or how do you think of the the stigma? Well, it's a very
1: diverse disease, a disease of enormous diversity, genetic diversity, and um, there's not one cancer, but many cancers. Uh, It is a disease unlike heart disease, unlike most other diseases, where the level of genetic diversity is enormous. And now we're beginning to understand: it's not just genetic diversity. There's also a component, a powerful component of evolution here. Cancer cells are constantly evolving, and they're evolving by creating their own environments, their own microenvironments. They defy the immune system uh, through a process of selection and evolution, etc. So we're, it's a very different kind of battleground, as it were, compared to heart disease.
0: Does it make sense to keep classifying cancer in terms of their organs of origin, like lung and breast and prostate, is that, or, or is our thinking changing? Well,
1: we're kind of in a, halfway, in a halfway moment about that.
0: It certainly made sense
1: initially. From from the standpoint, but now the now the genetics is is redefining that. So basically, it it might turn out that your brain cancer could share some genes with 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 a breast cancer. Now that said, um, when we try to treat based on these kind of new genetic um, paradigms, um, those are still not very successful. In part, because somehow or the other, the cancer cell seems to remember its tissue of origin. So the truth is somewhere in between.
0: Interesting. And finally, is, is there any important difference between childhood and adult cancer? Um, it seems to be that there there's some fundamental
1: differences between them. They, childhood cancers tend to uh, be more responsive to many chemotherapies, and the quick answer is we don't know exactly why.
0: All right. I am sorry to have given uh, one of the most important diseases such a short shrift in the presence of one of the most important writers and thinkers on the topic. This is just going to justify a um, another podcast before we all get cancer, Siddhartha. <laughs> Thank you so much. Okay. Thanks a lot. Thank you.